You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Michael Bibler, Robert Penn Warren Distinguished Associate Professor at Louisiana State University. His research focuses on queer readings of 19th and 20th century American literature and culture with a a specific focus on the U.S. South. He is author of Cotton's Queer Relations, Same-Sex Intimacy in the Literature of the Southern Plantation, 1936 to 1968, and co-editor of Just Below South, Intercultural Performance in the Caribbean and the U.S. South and the first scholarly reprint of Arnav Bontemps' 1936 novel about the Haitian Revolution, Drums at Dusk, which is an excellent novel. His current project is entitled Literally, The Queerness of Things Just As They Are. And today we will speak with him about the intersections between Lillian Smith and James Baldwin, his recent course, Baldwin's Queer South, and more. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Bibbler. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I was really excited when you when you kind of reached out and, and asked me to to zoom in with you in your class, your graduate level course about Lillian Smith. And you actually prompted me to read Carson McCullers, which I'll mention a second ago, because that class was Baldwin's Queer South. And I read McCullers' Clock Without Hands. That was the novel you taught. And there's a lot of similarities that I got to dive back into with Lillian Smith and McCullers. And I don't think Smith really liked to Clock Without Hands from kind of the reviews I read. But that's a whole other issue. But about that course, there's a lot you did in that course. So can you talk some about the course, the text that you chose or that y'all read and kind of your students' responses to it, to, to the yeah. course overall and to Lillian Smith in particular? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to think about um, the kind of contemporary revival, if that's the right word, of, of um, James Baldwin. But I also wanted to think about Baldwin um, and, and something I had noticed in a lot of his reading that when he has um, very queer characters, um, um, maybe specifically gay or bi men, um, they often experience their sexuality in the South or with Southerners. Um, it's an interesting connection that he does in quite a few places. Um, and so what I wanted to do is think, okay, if Baldwin is doing this, starting in the late 50s or starting in the 50s what is the relationship we might find between what other kind of out by our terms queer southern writers were doing um, in representing the south in representing racial politics and in representing sexual identities and sexual politics so i thought um the we'll read a lot of baldwin which we did Um, (laughs) we read quite a lot of his essays we also read um go tell it on the mountain um, Giovanni's Room, Another Country, and Just Above My Head, which is his last novel from 79. And, um, but we read that in conversation with works, by, like I said, by queer Southerners of that, who were contemporaries of his that tried to explore similar questions that, he, that Baldwin was doing. So we read um, Lillian Smith's Killers is a Dream. Um, we read um, two plays and one short story by Tennessee Williams. The plays were um, suddenly last summer and um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and then the story was um, Desire and the Black Masseur which like Suddenly Last Summer has a lot to do with um, sexuality 
and race um, and also ends in cannibalism. Then um, we read um, Truman Capote's The Grass Harp, which is the second novel, which a lot of people don't read or talk about, um, but that's kind of a civil rights novel. It invokes a lot of civil rights discourse and it's very much about opposition within a town about tolerance. And then um, Carson McCullers, the last novel, Clock Without Hands from 1961, which is also a civil rights novel. It's set in and against the, the civil rights movement um and then um oh i'm sorry it's okay and then um we read also then ann allen shockley's novel from 1982 say jesus and come to me which i think has a lot to um in dialogue with just above my head um so still a contemporary of baldwin's but there a, an out lesbian black writer exploring those questions about civil rights activism sexual politics and so forth and see i haven't read i keep meaning to read giovanni's room and i haven't read it and just above my head a colleague has really kind of said you know that's a novel i need to read too and i know that i need to read those too but how do students kind of respond to this kind of discussion because in killers we don't really have that that discussion of sexuality or we have discussed of sexuality but not necessarily queerness within killers it kind of comes up a little bit more into the surface in strange fruit so how did they kind of kind of navigate that i would say specifically with with mccullers like i said because that was the novel that i read and it's 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 there and and there and ketten hot tin root which i have issues with that on another kind of level but <laughs> sure, all of all of these texts have issues yeah um, you know and and it's funny that um especially as we got later and sort of started to think about we read a, um, a conversation between baldwin and audrey lord from yeah. Um, that's, that's, you can get easily on the internet. Um, and you can see how Baldwin is, is not quite incorporating, but neat, but, but trying to, and neat and clearly in need of, um, so what we might now call black feminist theory. Um, and, and Alan Shockley also kind of throws that in, in Baldwin's direction in interesting ways. Um, the, um, Giovanni's room is actually kind of an exception because it's, so expatriate, um, mm -hmm. it's all in France. And so there isn't really a South in there, but we wanted to talk about um, or make sure not to miss sort of his most famous novel with gay identities and gay, exploring so, gay desires. So where are the characters from in Giovanni's room? Um, I well, Giovanni is from Italy. Um, um, David is from now I've forgotten, but I think, um, I think sort of upper Midwest, Chicago-ish maybe. Okay. Well, it reminds um, me. Could be wrong on that, but he's not from the south. Well, the reason I was asking that is because I think about Frank Yerby's novel *Speak Now*, which deals with interracial intimacy with the with a black man and a white woman, right. and it takes place in Paris in '68 during the student, you know, um, protests and everything. But she's from North Carolina; he's from Georgia. So having them set there as expatriates, but then also having the baggage of the south carried with them, right? Yeah, in this case, the, um, there's none of the regional, but um, it's very much a kind of whitewashed um, or, or sanitized, maybe it's yeah. a better word, Americanness in Giovanni's room. Um, in Just Above My Head, there is a South, in another country, there is a South, um, the sort of most gay character from Faldo has a, his first sexual relationship was with an African-American man in the South um, in Alabama. Um, and just above my head, um, there's a lot that happens on the civil rights circuit. Um, um, and there is a moment in France also, but he connects that moment. He, um, there, Arthur has a relationship with a man named Guy, 
who was a fighter in the French Algerian war. So here's Baldwin making this global connections. The, um, with, with Smith, um, one of the things we focused on in class um, was maybe a little bit less of, of how she's representing queer sexualities, although she does do some of that um, in, the, in, the, in the essays, in the way she talks about how um, artists are viewed as queer or the way that um, um, this notion of deviance is, is tied to this notion of suppressing and repressing aspects of yourself and just the way that distorts personalities and desires. Um, but one of the things we talked a lot about with Smith was the way that Baldwin was so good at kind of adding the psychology um, of racism and, and the sort of affects of racism and what that was doing to whites and to blacks. And um, Smith very much also doing that, bringing in like, what does it feel like to, to live under racism? And what, is it, what does it feel like when racism is doing that, doing something to you as white? And what is how does that affect your psychology and how you react? So, so taking the sociological aspects um, that we might think about with racism and really adding those psychological um, affective dimensions in. So that was really interesting to see. Um, we didn't go, we didn't get so simplistic as to say like, you know, we couldn't have had a Baldwin without Smith. Smith was, you know, made yeah, Baldwin yeah. happen or something like that. But, but clearly he's, you know, his, the way he's approaching these conversations is, mu is much in, in the vein of how she was doing it a, slightly a generation earlier. Right, and I, and I don't know, I don't know fully their connection. I know they were connected. And I know that that Smith kind of viewed him a little bit later as she did others as, as moving a little too far um, away. Um, but I don't until we know that kind of dynamic or that kind of discussion right now. But I, I, I know found, that they I were found connected. very few mentions of Smith in in Baldwin's writing. Yeah, I don't um, think I've seen mentions of Smith in Baldwin's writing, but I've seen letters where she's mentioned him mm -hmm. and kind of discussions. And she she met him. I know that they that they met each other and there are other things too. I just don't know the extent. It's kind of like the stuff with Martin Luther King. I started finding more as I started digging more. So it'll probably take some time to actually find some, but I'm sure there's stuff there. And I don't know, now you speak of it, I don't know if she was connected with Capote. I didn't see anything with that. I know she wasn't connected with Harper Lee. Um, so yeah, I don't I know. Doubt, I doubt she was con connected with Capote because Capote was so quick to go into an in, like an international jet set and he was so avowedly apolitical in, in, his, in his, you know, his, his personal stance on things. Um, so I doubt she was connected much with him. I would love to follow up about Anne Allen Shockley because the, one of the characters who kind of helps bring out the main lesbian character is Dr. Lily Smith, <laughs> mm. <laughs> which one of my students picked up on right away. Um, so it would be very interesting. And Shockley herself was a librarian at Fisk, so I wouldn't be not be surprised if they occupied or intersected in any ways. No, probably I'll, not in a sexual relationship, but who knows? But it'd be very interesting to see their connection. Well, I, I know, of course, that Smith was connected with Fisk and she was connected with Clark Atlanta and Spelman and the HBCUs in Atlanta, but she was also connected with Fisk, I think, through Charles Johnson and others, too. But the fact that she was a librarian, I think, speaks volumes, too, because Paula, of course, is a librarian. Right. And th there seems to be this kind of undercurrent within librarians as a side of resistance, too, which is a whole other discussion that I've had with somebody else right. that I think is worth it kind of exploring. I just did a quick search. UGA received a grant to digitize um, the materials they have at the archive. 
And they haven't digitized everything. They have about 14,000, I think, pages digitized. Now, I've looked for Shockley, Baldwin, and Capote, and nothing popped up yet. Okay. So, But there's a lot on King with Polly Murray and others as well. But that leads us, that leads me to that second question, because you, you mentioned when we were getting ready that some of the essays you wanted to look at with Baldwin, and one of them was The Fire Next Time, the book. And I always go back to the letter he writes, of course, to his, to his nephew at the beginning. So Lillian Smith opens the 1961 edition of Killers of the Dream, the reprint, by stating one of the reasons she wrote the memoir. She says, I wrote it because I had to find out what life in a segregated culture had done to me, one person. She also expounds elsewhere and points out she wrote it for white Southerners to examine themselves. In My Dungeon Shook, which is the letter opening the fire next time, the letter that Baldwin wrote to his nephew, um, which an this essay actually initially appeared in the Progressive in December 1962, alongside Lillian Smith's The Mob and the Ghost. Um, other essays in there were by Martin Luther King Jr., James Hope Franklin, A. Philip Randolph, Paula Snelling. It's like a crazy issue of who's who. I wish um, you should get that reprinted. <laughs> well, I have a copy of it. Um, but James Baldwin writes to his nephew and he says, quote, to act is to be committed and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity, end quote. And both Smith and Baldwin detail the psychological effects of racism, not just on those whom it oppresses, but also on the oppressor, like you mentioned. So can you expand some about the intersections you see between Smith and Baldwin on the psychological impact of racism on those who enacted upon others? Because I think Baldwin's quote there, I was looking back, I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing. But the end of that, I think, sums up what Smith talks about, too, that in the minds of most white Americans, it's the fear of losing their identity. Right. Um, definitely. And I feel like that idea is is present in a lot of Baldwin's work, that fear like that whites have to confront and and in a way have to lose their identity in order to then move forward. Right. So um, he tossed in the fire next time. Let's see if I can be. Um, quick about this. He says, um, I'm very much concerned that American Negroes achieve their freedom in, in the United States, but I'm also concerned for their dignity, the health of their souls, and others, um, sorry, and must oppose any attempts that Negroes may make to do to others what have been done to them. Whoever debases others is debasing himself. That, that is not a mystical statement, but a most realistic one, which is proved by the eyes of any Alabama sheriff. Um, and that so sounds he, like Lillian. That, right. <laughs> that, the, 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 the eye for an eye, there needs to be some way, instead of reversing what happens, the equality, right? Right, right. Um, let's see. He says um, earlier in the night, he says, um, is the individual... Un uncertainty on the part of white Americans, men and women, is the inability to renew themselves at the fountain of their own lives. And this makes discussion, let alone elucidation of any conundrum so supremely difficult. The fact that whites won't face and, and sort of open themselves to this self-investigation as well as the, the systemic, you know, the investigation of the sin and re, um, systems and then renew themselves to the, makes the dialogue almost impossible. Um, right, and and that also sounds very Smith to me. And, and that's one of the things Smith and Snelling write about. There's an essay, I don't remember the name of it, but they talk about the narcissism of white supremacy. Right. And the fact that until 
this is me kind of summing up and kind of my position that I've come to, you know, until you're willing to look at yourself in the mirror, you're not going to get anywhere. But the fear of looking yourself in the mirror, as Baldwin points out, is losing yourself. Right. Because you're losing what, what you think is real or what you think is important. And when those things are actually keeping people um, oppressed. Absolutely. Um, and he does, he continues this theme all the way to the end of his, his career. Um, he says the result, um, uh, um, so the house of bondage accomplished for what we will call this classic white American was the destruction of his moral sense, except in relation to whites, but it also destroyed his sense of reality and therefore his sense of white people had to be as compulsively one-dimensional as his vision of blacks. The result is that the white Americans have been one another's jailers for generations. Um, and even later than that, this is from the price of the ticket, um, White people are not white. Part of the price of the ticket is to delude themselves into believing, believing that they are. Um, that, yeah, that, that even just believing in this mythology of whiteness and this feeling of whiteness is, is a self-delusion. And, um, and he does it lots and lots and lots and lots of places. Um, yeah, I was, looking, I was looking back over and that kind of reminds me of the section I kind of, I kind of pulled out partly because of what I'm interested in right now and looking at for an upcoming summer class, but his discussion of the Holocaust and his discussion of people saying, how could the Holocaust happen? How could we let this happen? Right. Right. And kind of that not looking at yourself. And there's things that he kind of says kind of at the end there that I think are really important and really telling. And Lillian Smith points out the same thing about the Holocaust. I kind of have issues with how she says it because she's like, I think that the lynching of, I forget the number, but the thousands of African-Americans is worse on some level than the Holocaust. I'm like, eh, I don't necessarily agree with you on that. But th the point she's making, of course, is that the same thing that is happening, that happened in Germany and, and in Europe has been happening here, right? The reconstruction, Jim Crow and everything, and then even following. And Baldwin and Smith aren't the only two that point this out. There are, million, there are countless others as well. But this is kind of this is what he says. And this is in the fire next time. White people were and are astounded by the Holocaust in Germany. They didn't know that they could act that way. But I very much doubt whether black people were astounded, at least in the same way. For my part, the fate of the Jews and the world's indifference to it frightened me very much. I could not but feel in those sorrowful years that this human indifference concerning which I knew so much already would be my portion on the day that the United States decided to murder its Negroes systematically instead of little by little and catch as catch can. I was, of course, authoritatively assured that what had happened to the Jews in Germany couldn't happen to the blacks in America. But I thought bleakly that the German Jews had probably believed similar counselors. And again, I could not share the white man's vision of himself for the very good reason that white men in America do not behave toward black men the way they behave toward each other. When a white man faces a black man, especially if the black man is helpless, terrible things are revealed, right? So this kind of failure to look at yourself, and I think about this too now with that failure to look at yourself, failure to look at your history, to see how history is in many ways repeats itself cyclically, I would say, maybe not even cyclically, but repeats, your, repeats itself and you don't acknowledge that because Smith points out at one point too, in the white Christian is conscience, something else I always go back to that nowhere was hatred as vehement for the Nazis than it was in the South because they were afraid to look at themselves basically because their conscience was hurting just as much. Right. Right. It's kind of the way she frames it. So 
it gets back to that question of how do you look at yourself? And that's something I've been thinking about a lot. How do you get somebody to look at themselves if they're not one willing to look at it? And I think that's what Smith and Baldwin are dealing with. Absolutely. The, and he does it again and again and again. And, and you know, in, in his later essays, he um, even when he's talking about music um, um, in his uncollected, well, in the essays that are in the cross of redemption, uncollected writings, he has yeah. um, an essay about the blues, an essay about jazz. And, and in both of those, for example, he says one of the things about black music um, is that it's a way for African descended people to face what has happened to them and find joy or build joy and build camaraderie and things out of that um, to not just suppress or deny the pain and things like that. Um, and, and then he flips it into, to, you know, the implication is that whites have not as a whole, you know, have not found a way to, to, to look at themselves these ways. Um, and, and um, you mentioned the, 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 the white preacher in the conscience. Um, he he also does this, especially about fundamentalists. And in his, in his later set essays, he has um, a note to the um, to the born again. And then what I think is his very last essay, "To Crush a Serpent" from 1987, he takes on re religious fundamentalists and talk about um, how how all they can do is that by not facing the complexities and multiplicities and, and difficulties of life. They just want to suppress to the most simplistic thing and in the process have to destroy um, the gay person, the Jew, the black person, the foreigner, any others. And so that he, not just there, but he connects, you know, the Holocaust and the, and, and the Jim Crow South, but also American imperialism, European imperialism. He talks about the French war in Algiers all the time. Um, he, he, in, in a message to the born again, or an open letter to the born again, he criticizes fundamentalist support of um, Israel and, and Zionism to, and kind of says like, you can be Zionist and um, anti-Semitic and anti-Palestine at the same time. Right. <laughs> um, well, the, so he's really like extending all of these forms of oppression and finding them mirrored in lots of places. That leads me to my next question, because one of the things, the price, the ticket, the documentary, there's a scene in there where he's, you know, he's in San Francisco and they come, they come to a, to a burned out church and his kind of whole discussion of religion. He's basically like, you know, his dad was a preacher, but he's like, you know, my parents never thought that America was a Christian nation. And I think that, you know, the Christians have shown it by their deeds, basically is kind of what he says. Yeah. And something that Baldwin and Smith both kind of confront is that, for lack of a better term, white evangelicalism, I guess is just the way to frame it. Because that's how, that's how we phrase it now, right? Yeah. Which leads me to the next question, because in The Fire Next Time, Ball and in other essays, as you pointed out, he confronts the Christian church um, and his upbringing. So not just the impact it has on whites, but also the psychological impact it has on himself, right? Um, in much the same way that Smith does in Killers of the Dream, she has that long section. Um, and she does it elsewhere, too. At one point, Baldwin writes that, quote, in order to survive as a human, uh, moving moral weight in the world, America and all the Western nations will be forced to re-examine themselves and release themselves from many things that are now taken as sacred and to discard nearly all the assumptions that have been used to justify their anguish and their crime so long. And in this section, he's talking about Christianity and religion, right? So can you talk some a little bit more about how you see Baldwin and Smith confront, confronting and dissecting um, white evangelicalism? Yeah, um, well, the, I, I mean, you know, the, the easiest, obvious answer is kind of what you said, said that they're so critical of it. Um, and and they're, they're critical, um, 
uh, in the hypocrisies of it. Um, they're critical of um, Baldwin, especially, I think, um, names this out right at the end in the oversimplification of it. It's a single mindedness, an attempt to find the single single mindedness. And if things don't fit, they're out, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, um, but the other thing they both do, and this is something my students were very, very interested in. And Baldwin does this from the beginning with um, um, Go Tell It on the Mountain. It comes back again in, in while quite a lot in um, just above my head. But, um, you know, Smith talks about it in, in that essay, Distance and Darkness in um, um, Killers of the Dream, um, the sort of the interlacing of sexuality and, mm-hmm. and pleasure and sensuality with religion, um, especially evangelical religion. And, and Smith talks about the way that, um, you know, the, the tent meeting or the revival would introduce these, you know, rural Southerners into all kinds of knowledge of you know, quote, sin and, and deviance and things as a way supposedly to exercise them, right, to get them out of the system. And, but, but what it does is actually feed that feeling of that, that sexuality, that energy, that sensuality. And, um, and Baldwin is very interested in that overlap between how, how the sexuality or the sexual dynamics of the spiritual world and of the, and of the power of the church um, become their own forms of denial and oppression. And, um, but also if you can confront it, then ways by which you might find other forms of expression or other possible, more opening liber, you know, forms of liberation or something. Yeah. She calls it that word, you know, she basically, she doesn't use the triptych term, but it's the, it's the sex and segregation triptych, the three S's. Right. And the other thing about kind of her discussion, I remember where she does this, if it's in that chapter or not in Killers of the dream or elsewhere, but, you know, Reverend Dunwoody in, in Strange Fruit is kind of like this, too. Him actually telling Tracy, you know, well, you're supposed to just use Nani, um, whatever, because she's black. And, and this is the pastor who's coming in for the revival. But one thing that kind of catches me, too, is she points out, like I said, I don't remember where, but at the tent meetings of the revival meetings, the people you see coming down to the front to get saved aren't the ones that you would think would need it. The capitalist or the, the rich, the wealthy, rich whites who were oppressing everybody. But it's just the everyday, probably poor whites or blacks, right? So she makes she makes a very, I think, keen distinction there too that you see the individuals who come down to the front to confess their sins and to do things, you know, that they may be sinning, quote unquote, within that kind of language, but they're not the ones who could actually probably make, you know, significant change if they actually just change the way they were acting, right? Right. Right. And the quote from, from Baldwin, too, I pulled it up real quick, that he says, when he's, he's standing outside St. Mary's, and he says this, I don't even think they're Christians, and I know they're not because I know I was raised Christian. My daddy and my mama were very religious, and they knew that white Christians were not Christians because of the way that they treated black people. And the Christian church in this country has never, in my experience, as far as I know, been Christian. The record proves the Christian church is bankrupt. Right. And I mean, that's a that's a very pointed statement. Right. And like you said, Baldwin talks about this a lot. And I was you mentioned um, Baldwin's going to meet the man, which is one of my favorite short stories. And did you teach that one? I'm assuming, too. We uh, we opened with it. Um, (laughs) My students were like, gee, thanks for the warning about what this happens. Well, I mean, you could you could open with that and Ralph Ellison's party down at the square just gone together, you know, Um, but. I was looking back over, I didn't reread it, but there was one thing that kind of caught me in there 
And is it a sheriff? I forget. Or is it a deputy? It's a law enforcement officer. He's a deputy sheriff. Um, but he's never named, right? Uh, I think he is, but it's very brief. Okay. So, but anyways, in, in the story, you know, it details the ritualistic racial violence that Smith and Baldwin both deal with. Right. And its impact on the white psyche, specifically the protagonist's inability to perform sexually unless he thinks about the lynching he attended as a child right. um, in his role as a sheriff's deputy or sheriff. Right. And this is what stood out. At one point, the narrator says, quote, and he was a good man, a God bearing man. He had tried to do his duty all his life. And there's discussion of law and order. Right. You know, how, how does this description of, of the deputy or sheriff relate to the psychological impact of racial violence that both Baldwin and Smith dissect in their work? <laughs> Stuff we're already well, talking think, about. Right. Um, and I think this is part of Baldwin's interest in the South. He, he, his parents were from the South, mm-hmm. but he wasn't from the South. It's he said, little... one quote I always go back to with Baldwin is he said, for all intents and purposes, I'm a, I'm a Southerner. If my mom right. and dad waited one more minute, I would have been born in the South, right? Yeah. Um, and I think he's very interested in representing, he's interested in that figure of the sheriff, especially, but he's interested in, in um, the differences between Black people who live in the South and, and the North. Um, he writes about the, the difference between South and North quite a lot in essays. And then just above my head, you know, when the gospel um, group goes to the South um, to sing, they kind of, they meet, they encounter all these different kind of ways of thinking about race that, that they had not had. Um, so he's interested in like, I think especially about like under the thumb of this, of this really violent um, threat of, of segregation and, and, and racial violence, um, what things become possible. Um, so, but with the sheriff figure, I, I was going to read you another another quote too. This is from his last essay, um, "To Crush the Spirit," he, where he's talking about fundamentalists, and he says these ministers, however, are of no interest in themselves, at least of no more intrinsic interest than any deep south sheriff. And indeed, the ministers remind me of sheriffs and deputies I have encountered: the same lips, the same flat slate-like eyes, the same self-righteous voices. Now, I find it somewhat disturbing to mention the minister and the sheriff in the same breath, but I am Black and they entered my life in the same breath. Both the white fundamentalist minister and the deputy are Christians, hardcore Christians, one might say. Both believe that they are responsible, the one for divine law and the other for natural order. Both believe that they are able to define and privileged to impose law and order and both historically and actually know that law and order are meant to keep me in my place. Um, that's into Crush of Spirit, which is in the um, the Cross of Redemption. Yeah, and um, and the narrator in Going to Meet the Man says, this is the, the sheriff. He tried to be a good person and treat everybody right. It wasn't his fault at the end to taking it into their heads to fight against God and go against the rules laid down in the Bible. So, of course, using the Bible for justification of racial right. oppression uh, right. for everyone to read. Any preacher would tell you that. He was only doing his duty. This is that conflation you're talking about, protecting white people from the ends and the ends from themselves. And there were still lots of good ends around. He had to remember that they weren't all like that boy this afternoon. Um, but that kind of, I think that that's very telling, that kind of conflation of, you know, law enforcement, the, the physical law enforcement, and also the spiritual kind of law enforcement, I guess you would say. Right. Yeah. And bringing and, them together. And then going to meet the man, um, um, that that power, that sense of like, I am the one authorized by God and by the nation 
is is the on, kind of the only thing that get is allows him to um, experience sexual pleasure. Right? Um, he can only imagine it as vindictive and oppressive. He's he's sexually energized by imagining lynching and beating black bodies and raping black bodies. That's the only way he can um, find pleasure, even with his wife. And she he has to call call her racial names in order to racist names in order to so that they can have sexual pleasure i wonder um, i need to reread it but something you said there kind of remind me of something else too about this idea of victimhood and being in positioning yourself white specifically as victims right mm. or as you know white evangelical christians as victims that you're being oppressed when when you're not right and i don't know where to, where to kind of think with that but I wonder if Baldwin talks about that. I'm sure he does. Cause that's, that, that's a thread I've kind of noticed and started picking up on. I think Smith may talk about that a little bit too, but just the way that you, you frame yourself as a victim of things being overrun that, you know, I'm going to lose my position. It gets back to that loss of your identity. Right. I feel, um, that's a good point. I feel like it is not as, I feel like we didn't notice it in class quite as much as we notice it about our own moment when that discourse is so prevalent of white victimage um, of like, oh, everybody's against me, you know, where the straight white male is the greatest victim on earth, right? Um, <laughs> all in quotation marks. <laughs> um, and, um, um, I, and that might be a slightly different, um, just because of the slightly the differences of the time where it's really hard to say, white to you know as white person you're victim of x y and z when you are actually bombing churches um as not just generally or like incidentally but in the name of um the state um right. and he talks about this um in a in a few places where he says um talks about sort of mob violence um uh, um and how that's a public confession of the um there's sort of erotic and political alignment with the state um, that they're not, they're not actually vigilantes. They're working for the state uh, in there. Which makes perfect sense. If you look at everything. Um, so let's end with this. And I know, I know we've, we've talked about a lot, but both Smith and Baldwin continue to be important writers. You mentioned there seems to be a Baldwin Renaissance. I, <laughs> I don't know if it's a renaissance because for me it seems to have always been there, but sure. I kind of I understand what you're saying. I think Smith, maybe just because I'm so connected with it, seems to be having some a moment as well, which I think she should. Um, but, you know, they're both important writers and thinkers today and their words echo through the decades, speaking to us in our contemporary moment. So the question is to kind of end this, what other works would you recommend to listeners from either Baldwin, Smith, or other writers? You've already mentioned some essays by Baldwin, but anything else that you think they should go read and why it's important for them to read it today? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, one thing about this, or what I mean when I say Baldwin's The Renaissance is my students kind of did a um, like a kind of survey of the field of criticism mm -hmm. and, and writing about Baldwin. And with the um, emergence of Black Lives Matter as a movement, the, the discussion of or mention okay. of Baldwin also does increase. So it's not like he ever went away, but he's certainly like bigger now than he than he was maybe a decade ago in terms of just frequency of his name used. Yeah. You know? um, yeah so uh, other you know I I think actually I would go back to McCullers. Um, there's a few early essays by Baldwin. And he's like, yeah, we've all moved on from Carson McCullers, but um, 
but he ends by talking about the kind of his interest in androgyny as a way of embracing the whole human self um, and, and the way that dominant society turn, try, um, tries or does turn those people into quote freaks. Um, and, um, and, um, and he's so interested in, especially if you read him in dialogue with Audre Lorde, um, he's so interested in like, wait, yeah, we can, we have to be political, but we have to also, you know, confront and face and study and read. And Audre Lorde's like, and we have to stop doing these things and get out in the streets and, and fight things. But, but and see, that, um, that, 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 that sounds so much like Smith too, <laughs> yeah. but because, because Smith views herself as an artist. Right. And she, one of the, one of the things she kind of she kind of said too, which I don't necessarily agree with, she said she said that the issues of Jim Crow and racism, it's kind of the same thing I guess Minkin said, you know, um, just in a different way, but kind of drained the South of its kind of creative, you know, energy. And I'm like, did it really? That's another discussion. But it, it, when you're talking about Baldwin and Lord, I haven't read that that conversation, but it sounds like Baldwin's basically we have to be able to think about ourselves as humans too not just this this one thing right right which and this one thing is huge it's not denying that and i think smith says the same thing but we have to figure out who we are right um and 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 it, that conversation is is kind of funny because audrey lord's like yes and <laughs> you know they're not they're like she they keep saying like i'm not disagreeing with you i'm not disagreeing with you and um but he's much more interested in um, yeah, that figure of the artist. And I, I have not forgotten the question about other things to read, but I will point out this because I did want to say, um, so in 1962, he has an essay called The Creative Process. And he starts by talking about how all societies are afraid of artists because artists confront a notion of a stable world and a stable society and try to get at things um, um, that, that, non-artists I guess um, also see um, in in Southern Waste um, I think this is maybe the part you're talking about with with William Smith she says of the varied manifestations of stress in our culture the fear of hands used creatively and the acceptance of hands that destroy seem to me most revealing men grow afraid of their own human stature and and of that which contributed so much to creating it. She talks about the fear of the artist, the way that artists um, can, can, by exposing the human and the complexity, um, do cause this fear and uncertainty. Um, but I think uh, going back to your question that I think it is worth reading McCullers um, and, and what we might think, and with the question of how, you know, she has a civil rights novel. It's not really like, let's get out in the streets, but it's trying to do something that's related to that. Um, I think also the way that um, Smith and Baldwin are so interested in how whites in power pit um, poor whites against blacks, um, that it would be worth re going back to reading um, even a little earlier, some of the proletariat fiction of the thirties that also kind mm -hmm. of explores and I think so, that's yeah. a that's a very important thread because Yerby's doing that too. Right. I mean, Gaines does it, as you and yeah. I know too. That there's there's so many threads. I mean, the boys, of course, is arguing that that I think that's an important thread to kind of to kind of pick up on. And that's a thread that I'm really interested in too. Right. Um, I, I'm gonna give a big plug to um um Ann Allen Shockley's novel, um, Say Jesus and Come to Me. Um 
I was surprised. I mean, I knew I knew the student, my students would like it in class, but I was surprised the degree to which they loved it and felt like it was so clearly in dialogue with some of the questions of like power and sexuality in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and but also she organizes a kind of um, a march because um, there's a lot of violence against women, but especially prostitutes in Nashville at that moment in the novel. Um, so she forges this whole kind of political um, 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 coalition to to resist that violence and to put the um, the activism out into the streets. Um, so, so, you know, there's, the, and that's 1982, the same year as The Color Purple. Um, one of those two books did not get a major motion picture and a musical built on them. The other did. <laughs> so I talked about that as well. Um, and I think contemporary, um, you know, Robert Jones Jr. Ta- calls himself in his blog, The Son of Baldwin. Um, Keisha Lehman, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, the organizers of Black Lives Matter, I think we're all really picking up his legacy, um, Baldwin's legacy and in, in dealing with that. Um, I don't know, and that's not to say it's not happening, but I feel like I, I'm not as confident naming a white voice that's so interested in critiquing whiteness in the way that Smith does. Um, and see, um, I'm not sure about that. Either. I haven't read D'Angelo. I know that she uses smith as actually the epigraph i'm like i don't know who would be and and smith has her issues i'm not going to say that she's she's perfect i think every writer has their issues as we mentioned before but she's really the first that i've seen that really kind of dives into is like and i think what makes her important i've said it time and time again is she's looking at herself like she says she's like i had to do this to look at myself right she's doing the practice of what baldwin and we've been talking about is until you look at yourself, you're not going to change anything. Right. And I think her, her issues had to do with class and some other things like that. But I, I kind of agree. I don't know anybody who I can think of who's actually doing anything, a white voice at this time. Not to that, maybe not to that extent. Um, right. I don't know. Um, yeah. There was, a, um, when we first read Smith, a lot of my students felt she I guess for lack of a better word, she she felt a bit dated. Um, Everything Baldwin was saying, like we could easily apply to, you know, um, the don't don't say gay laws, the the Black Lives Matter Matter movement, all all, so many contemporaries. And Smith felt a bit 40s, right? Um, but, But as the semester went on, we kept coming back to Smith as well. Um, and, and that feeling of hers being dated um, really slipped away quickly. And, and we and, felt like, um, and we all kind of felt like there's a way she's, by be, writing about, about her own whiteness um, in such a, a forthright way um, and, and compelling way, um, re- really stuck with us all. Well, here's the, here's the thing. I kind of want to end on this. One thing with Smith, I think that's important to remember too. So that book comes out in 49, but there's the reissue in 61. You see Mm -hmm. her kind of changing. One of the things that a student I looked at this semester is kind of her shifting politics, which I think is kind of interesting too. But one thing that I think we need to remember with Smith too is who she is informed by. Because she is informed by Black writers. She's informed by sociologists and psychologists. She's not necessarily necessarily informed. I'm sure another part of white writers who she's informed by too, but she's informed by these 
by these artists and everything too. And that's making her think and reflect, right? So like you're saying, people like Layman and Coates and, um, and Jones, me as a white person reading them, and of course, I've been doing this for a while, right? Is a way for me to reflect on myself. Somebody else showing, you know, the issues and how, showing myself to me. I guess the best way to put it, right? And I, and I think that's important for, to remember about her too, is that that's that's what she's doing as well. Because if you if you go to her library, God, Richard Wright, um, Black Metropolis is in there. Du Bois, all this stuff is in there. Baldwin's all up in there. I mean, it's she's very much informed by that. First edition, the Rise of Watching God. I mean, come on, wow. yeah. But um, she also didn't have writing in the 40s, I think. She also didn't have quite as many, su at least Southern white writers, exploring those those questions to the yeah. same degree. Um, and, the, um, and, you know, there, there were writers who were thinking about it and obviously anti-racist writers, um, by all means, and activists, right, white activists in, in the South as well, but, but um, not as rich a body as we have now. I agree. Right. Um, so she needed those black writers and she helped translate that into not maybe not. Let's not say she's the first or she's ahead of her time, but she translated that into thinking about her own whiteness for a white audience. Right. Um, and, and like I said, I think that she she's doing what any writer does and thinking about herself in that process. Right. Yeah. That process is her exploring herself, which is what we need to do. Yeah. Which is what I think of that I do through my writing, or at least I hope I do it. I kind of. I kind of feel like that that's that's why I keep writing as much as I do is to actually kind of work through my own, you know, kind of thoughts. Yeah. So I, just, I want to end with a little tiny anecdote. Yeah. So in the revision, in the 1961 revision um, uh, or edition of Killers of the Dream, one of the essays talks about um, the problem of new criticism. Um, as a field of study so the new and so we in the class we talked about new the new critics and how they there it was an interest in getting a little bit away from um historicist readings biographical readings like you just need the text and you need the right tools to unpack the text and you get at least kind of dehistoricized readings of of things and she was very much against that um, and she was very much against the agrarians. Right. She's against the agrarians for their racism. She's against new criticism um, um, for the way um, and the fugitives. She's like fugitive from what, you know, um, um, and, and for their kind of a historicism. So in our class, we walked down the hall at LSU to the plaque on the wall commemorating that this was Cleanth Brooks's office as a founding member of this field of new criticism. So we talked about, you know, what it means that, um, that um, um, you know, she's taking on this field that, or this body of criticism that emerged from our own very space. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and also you, you just said in the chat, you know, that I, I'm um, the Robert Penn Warren professor. Actually, I had to give that up this year. It's only a three-year term, alas. But what, where we had our class was the Robert Penn Warren seminar room. That's a big picture of Robert Penn Warren. So we also just thought about the way that Warren, you know, began to try to adjust his own views on segregation and things. So, yeah, so I, I think that's a key too, is actually grounding it with where they are. And being able to do that, I think, is very important. I think that that's one reason I think where you are, of course, 
with the new criticism stuff, but I, I think about Louisiana and going out to Gaines's house, you know, in the cemetery. I think about here with the camp, grounding her writing here. I mean, the things that she did in that camp up here is just insane with where she is, right? Okay. Down in Baton Rouge, it'd be a little bit easier. Maybe not New Roads, but like in Baton Rouge, a little bit easier than here. Um, it's, it's just crazy. So there's a lot more we could talk about, but we talked about a lot. So thank you for taking time with me today. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.